Amen. Please be seated. If you have a Bible, you can open to 1 John. We'll look at chapter 5, verses 1 through 5 this morning. The text is also printed in the bulletin for you. It's a, it's a pretty wonderful passage, and uh, as we've gotten further in our series on 1 John, we've noticed that uh, he uses the same language uh, in, in slightly different ways, but over and over again. It seems a bit repetitious, but uh, it's, a, it's a wonderful passage, and it really sums up, and it teaches so much about the nature of uh, Christian obedience. <clears throat> Christian obedience it doesn't necessarily sound like the most uh, fun topic of a sermon, but... Um, uh, hopefully we can change your mind on that this morning. That's, uh, that's what this passage is about, and it, it talks about the nature of Christian obedience. It talks about the relationship of obedience to our faith, which is particularly important for Christians. So um, it says uh, in our passage, which we'll read here in just a minute, that um, his commandments are not burdensome. His commandments are not burdensome. And I don't know if that resonates with you at all, uh, with me, uh, instinctively, when I read a passage like that, I think, what am I not getting? Because his commandments seem really burdensome to me. It says, I'm supposed to give up my entire life for the sake of other people. Uh, doesn't that seem burdensome? Isn't that at least confusing? Um, it may be confusing, but it really is. It, it's a glorious truth. When you understand what John is saying here, um, I think you'll like it. I hope you'll like it. So let's, uh, let's talk about it. This morning we're going to talk about Christian obedience. We're going to uh, look at five points, which will be brief, uh, hopefully. Um, first, Christian obedience is relational. Second, it's legal. Third, it's spiritual. Fourth, it is joyful. And fifth, it's reassuring. Uh, relational, legal, spiritual, joyful, and reassuring. That's what Christian obedience is. We'll look at uh, our passage, see what John has to say about that. Let's pray first, and then we'll read it. Father, help us as we come to consider your word. We do need your help. We always need your help when we come to your word, uh, because you need to um, overthrow the presuppositions uh, of our hearts. You need to change the direction of our hearts, you need to win our hearts and our minds to you by your grace. And uh, we know from your word that it is best that you do this. It is best that we would be overturned and redirected and won over by your grace. And so we pray that uh, your scriptures would uh, have that effect in our lives right now, that um, you would grant faith where there is none, that you would shape our minds and our hearts to be able to receive your word, and to be shaped by it into the likeness of Christ, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? 
This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, um, Christian obedience is relational. That's talking about the essence of what Christian obedience is. Um, this, this passage is about obedience when it talks about in verse 2, uh, when we love God, we obey his commands. And this is the love of God. We keep his commandments. So it's talking about his commandments, our relationship to the commandments, how we obey them, how we keep them. Uh, that's, that's Christian obedience. So that's the language we're going to use. Uh, sometimes language like sanctification or holiness uh, shows up. It's all kind of the same thing. It's, it's our activity. It's our behavior. It's the way that we act in relationship to God, um, uh, particularly in obedience to his commandments. So uh, the fact is that Christian obedience is essentially um, relational. It is, uh, in its nature, it's relational. That might seem obvious, right? It might seem just too obvious even to mention that when you're talking about obedience, you're talking about um, two parties, right? There's two parties, and they're in relationship with one another. One is the one who gives the command, which is obeyed, and the other is the one who obeys the command, which was given by the other. And so it has to do with this relationship. We're in a particular kind of relationship with God. It's not a relationship among equals, right? Um, uh, he is the one to be obeyed. But that's, that's to say it's not just an abstract morality either. Right? It's not just a set of rules that we keep uh, for good Christian living. It's not just an abstract. It's not uh, merely just some kind of a virtue um, in the abstract sense that you can do without having a relationship with God or without having a relationship with other people. Christian obedience is what you do um, <clears throat> and love as the, the main form of that. Uh, loving and obeying go together uh, with regard to the, the particular kind of relationship that we have with God, that he is the one to be obeyed and we're the ones who keep his commandments. He says what to do and we do it, right? Uh, so that's a relational, essentially relational thing. So sanctification then, which is the, the fancy theological word for growing in holiness, growing in uh, Christ-likeness, uh, growing in your life reflecting uh, God's law, God's uh, will for your life, um, sanctification is growing in submission to God. It's, in a sense, becoming better at being the one who obeys in the relationship with God. And uh, that, that finds expression in things like righteousness, right? Our obedience finds expression in things like righteousness, in things like justice, in things like love, primarily, uh, how we treat each other, right? So it's not just something, you know, Christian obedience is not just something that you can do in obedience to God that has no effect on your relationships with other people. It is relational in that sense, too, that Christian obedience takes the form of relational activity. It's the way that we treat each other. It's the way that we live in righteousness and justice and love toward each other. You might think, you might be tempted to think that... Um, Christian obedience essentially has to do with love, and that, that's disconnected from things like the law. It's disconnected from things like justice and righteousness. Uh, there's, there's a lot of folks in the church who think that, um, you know, the law, that's kind of the Old Testament stuff. Now it's all about love, and uh, we love each other. We don't have to pay so much attention to things like the Ten Commandments, um, really the, the characteristic thing in our relationship with each other is, is love, but um, that's just mistaking what the law is, because uh, the essence of the law is to love, is to love God and to love one another, right? So love is not pitted against the law. 
Love is the fulfillment of the law. Uh, love is commanded in the law, and when it's summed up in the, in the New Testament several times, uh, the, the law is summed up, and it says, it basically summed up in this. You're supposed to love God and love your neighbor, right? So love and law are not antithetical to each other. If you're going to obey God, you're, it's, it's also, second point, legal. It has to do with the law. I'm not talking about legalism. We'll talk about that in a few minutes. That's not what we're talking about. When we talk about Christian obedience, it's not legalistic. It's not moralistic. Uh, but it is legal in the sense of the word that, you know, le- legal is just an adjective, which means of, based on, concerning the law, right? The law is the form that our obedience takes. Our, our obedience, Christian obedience, is relational in essence. It's legal in form, right? Legal in expression. It says uh, this in our... Um, passage. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. So um, it can be a little bit confusing because John says things uh, kind of backwards in a few different places. Earlier he says things like, we know that we love God when we love our neighbors when we love each other, right? You can see that you, you love the God who is invisible when you love your brother or sister who is visible, right? So that by this we know that we love God when we love our neighbor. And here he says the opposite of that. By this we know that we love our neighbors, that we love each other when we love God and we keep his commandments. And I think that's saying um, that this is what love of neighbor looks like. This is what love of God looks like when we keep his commandments, right? And God's commandments, um, you know, if love for God takes the form of keeping his commandments and love for our neighbor, love for our brother and sister in the church uh, is essentially keeping God's commandments, then love, love, which is the fulfillment of the law, uh, it, it looks like what you do when you read the Ten Commandments and you do what it says there. Uh, the Ten Commandments are the place in the Old Testament, the Exodus 20 or Deuteronomy 5, where uh, you, you get the, the kind of a summary of the way God wants us to interact with himself and to interact with each other, the Ten Commandments. And then in the New Testament, you kind of have those distilled even further to the two great commandments, which is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. But um, <clears throat> we can look, you know, the, the Ten Commandments in the Old Testament kind of uh, flesh out what Christian obedience looks like uh, pretty well. So I'll just run through those very quickly. The first one is that we're to have no other gods before God. So the first several have to do with our relationship with God immediately, and the last several have to do with our relationship with each other, kind of on that horizontal level. But uh, firstly, we're, we're supposed to have no other gods except for Yahweh, the one true God as he's revealed himself in the scriptures. He's the only God there is. And so when we give our hearts to other gods, to false idols, what we're doing is we're, we're creating uh, things um, that are not gods. We're either shaping them with our hands out of wood and stone and setting them up and ascribing to them power and glory and asking them to do things for us, or we're investing in things like um, our careers, our money, our comforts, our uh, intimate relationships. We're investing in those things and we're ascribing power and glory and influence to those things and asking things from them that we're only supposed to ask from God. And so we're supposed to have no other gods. We're supposed to have no heart idols. We're supposed to find our, our perfect happiness, 
our perfect fulfillment and comfort and security and hope and everything. All of our life is supposed to be found in the one true God as he's revealed in the scriptures. And that's what the first commandment means. So that's a relational commandment, obviously. And all of these are. Uh, Secondly, we're supposed to have no carved images. That is to say, um, we're not supposed to set up something. It's a little bit different just from an idol. It's just uh, calling attention to the fact that this is coming from our own imagination. You can't imagine God how you want him to be. You can only relate to him as he truly is, just like you do in any kind of relationship. Uh, You relate to them not just after your own imagination, your own conception of who this person is. You relate to them as they truly are. And that person needs to tell you about themselves. You get to know them and you can have a relationship with them in just the same way with God. He has to tell you about himself in order for you to have a relationship with him as the one true God. And so uh, we look to his scriptures to tell us who he is, what he's like, what he's done for us, and how to relate to him. Uh, <clears throat> thirdly, we're, we're not taking God's name in vain. We're not supposed to do that. That means we're supposed to be more concerned for God's reputation than we are for ourselves. You can see how these things are difficult. Um, these things uh, really strike at, at the heart of uh, what's wrong with us as humans. I am supremely concerned with my own reputation, but I'm supposed to be more concerned. God says in his law, more concerned with his reputation, his name, his good name, than I am with my own. And uh, so another relational um, commandment there that I'm supposed to keep with regard to God. Uh, Fourth, remember the Sabbath. And uh, that can be a, a bit complicated to understand, but basically it means you are supposed to find your rest in God. Your, your heart is supposed to find its satisfaction and its rest and its delight in God. And you're supposed to set aside time on a regular basis, weekly, really, is uh, what the scripture says, <clears throat> in order to, um, to, to enjoy God's grace to you, to really enjoy it, to really celebrate it. And not just by yourself, but with each other. It says, remember the Sabbath, keep it, keep it holy. Six days you do work, the seventh day you rest, and you give all your employees rest, and you give all your animals rest. The whole world is meant to join together in uh, responding to God's grace and to, to worship him as he truly deserves. Uh, fifth, now it shifts towards the Ten Commandments, um, shift toward kind of the horizontal relationships that we have with each other. Honor your parents. Honor your parents, and by extension, honor those uh, to whom honor is due, right? Uh, those who are in positions of authority over you, in society, in your workplace, in the government, in the church, in your family, right? That's what that's talking about. So relational, uh, it has to do with how we treat each other, uh, but it's legal. It's in the Ten Commandments. Uh, no, um, we're not supposed to murder And that doesn't just mean, you know, Jesus kind of fleshed this out for us more in uh, places like Matthew 5 where he says, you've heard it said, don't murder. I say to you, if you hate your brother, you've committed murder in your heart. So he he takes this down to what's going on inside of you, not only what happens uh, externally between you and another person if you attack them and kill them, but the way that you feel toward them. It's, It's not supposed to be characterized by enmity and hatred, it's supposed to be characterized by love. You're supposed to work for the, the uh, good of the other people. You're supposed to preserve life and help people flourish in life. Um, you're not supposed to commit adultery. Again, Jesus says this doesn't just mean uh, sleeping with somebody who's not your spouse. Um, it means what's going on inside of your heart, having a, 
having pure intentions toward people, ha uh, having purity with regard to sexual intimacy in all sorts of ways, in your mind, in your heart, uh, what you're doing on your own uh, in the dark, what you're doing with other people. Uh, you are supposed to um, <clears throat> honor and cherish people of the op opposite sex as they deserve to be honored and cherished in God's image, as people created in God's image, and not to use them for your own pleasure. Uh, whether that's just secret in the thoughts of your heart or uh, whether that's in your interactions with them. You're not to use other people. You're, t you're to, to bless other people. Um, <clears throat> number eight, you're not supposed to steal. Um, kind of speaks to the idea of uh, 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 missing the word when you own stuff, <laughs> right? Real property, right? Personal property, private property. Uh, you're supposed to respect other people. You, you don't own the stuff that you see over there, you want it, you take it. Uh, you're supposed to respect people and their possessions, right? Uh, and then don't bear false witness. That is, we're to uphold honesty and righteousness and justice in our relationships with, the, with each other. Um, we don't lie about each other. We don't uh, speak evil of each other, slander, gossip, um, uh, bear false witness in court, things like that. And then finally, we're not supposed to covet. And again, this, um, this talks about the heart. These are not just external uh, things. These, keeping these commandments have to do with our heart attitudes toward each other. We're not supposed to want the things that our neighbors have. We're supposed to be content in our hearts with God's grace toward us. And these are the, the things that uh, fulfill the law. This is what the form that our Christian obedience is supposed to take. God is the one who has said, you're supposed to do these things. When you're in right, right relationship with me by, by grace, when you're in right relationship with me, this is what's going to characterize your life. This is what's going to characterize your relationship with me and other people. Uh, this is what, what's going to happen inside of your heart and your mind and with your actions, with your words. So the law has to do with how you think about God and others, how you feel about God and others, uh, how you speak to God and others, how you treat them, and it's based on God's revealed will. And, and God says that really keeping the law like this, um, as beautiful as it is, really, when you think about uh, how, how beautiful relationships can be, how beautiful the world can be if it's full of relationships that are in obedience to God and based on this uh, and taking the form of this law-keeping, uh, it's, it's really only truly possible for Christians. It's really only truly possible if you are uh, one of God's people, and that's the third point I want to make, is that it's spiritual. You have to have a resource for keeping God's uh, word, keeping God's commandments. And the resource is the Holy Spirit. The resource is the new birth that comes through the Holy Spirit. The resource, the resource that you have is a new heart that's planted in you by the Holy Spirit, keeping God's law and obedience to God. Christian obedience is unique to Christians who are born again by the Holy Spirit. That's what Jesus says has to happen, right? He says in, in uh, John, John's Gospel, chapter 3, talking to Nicodemus, you must be born again. You must be born from above. You must have a new life created within you from the inside out. And it's impossible if, to, to have a right relationship with God and to keep God's law if you, are, if you don't have that, if you're not... Um, born again of, of his spirit. It says in verses uh, 1 and 4 of our text, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. 
And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. So whoever else has been born of God, we love each other, right? When you're born of God, that, that's what characterizes you is this love for each other. It's a fulfillment of God's commandments. Everyone in verse 4, everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And he's putting uh, our obedience in a, in a different light there. Uh, it's not just with, our, with regard to our activity. It's with regard to the relationship that we have with the world, the world that is set in opposition against God. We've overcome that because we've been born of God. Right? So being born of God means we overcome the world. Being born of God means we have faith in Jesus Christ and we love those who are born of God. Right? So what comes first? What's the resource for being able to keep God's law and, and obey him, it's, it's being born of God. It's that new birth that comes from above. Your faith, according to this passage very clearly, your faith itself, the fact that you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the fact that you have a relationship with him uh, based on his grace through faith, that you trust Christ, who he is and what he's done for you, that is a continuing result of your having been born again first by the Holy Spirit having been born again uh, from above. It's supernatural. It's spiritual. That means in the, in the scripture, when so, something is spiritual, it means it has to do with the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. And, uh, and, it's, and it's something that um, he took initiative on. He had to take initiative. He did take initiative. And, um, <clears throat> and so John Stott, a commentator on our passage, says that believing and, and sub- subsequently uh, acting out that faith in obedience and love Believing is the consequence, not the cause, of the new birth. You don't act in a certain way. You don't love hard enough. You don't try hard enough in order to be born again. Uh, you're born again, and then you believe the gospel, and you live like you believe the gospel. That's the, the, the way that the Christian obedience is supposed to work. That's the resource that we have is this new birth. Jesus said in John 8, that if God were your father, he's talking to the Pharisees who claim to have God as their father because they're descendants of Abraham and we're good people, we're good moral religious people, we do everything that we're supposed to do and we've got good lineage, right? We've got good lineage, they say. Um, And um, as if all of their fathers weren't sinners in constant rebellion against God, uh, needing his grace, they think they have a leg to stand on on their own, in God's presence. They think they deserve to be called children of God. And, God, and Jesus himself says, no, if God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God. Right? If you were really born again by the Spirit, you would have love in your heart for those who are born of God. And in a sense, that's Jesus first and foremost, right? as the Son of God, the only begotten Son of God, the unique and perfect Son of God. And then all of those who are being recreated in his image who are being born again as sons and daughters of God through faith in Jesus Christ, that, that spiritual rebirth. Jesus says, if God were your father, then you would love me, and by extension, you would love those who belong to me. You would love those who are my brothers and sisters. So the new birth, it's the new birth that leads to new living and not the other way around, right? That's how this is not legalism. We're not trying to keep the law in order to become children of God. John says very clearly, if you are children of God, if you've been born again, every single one of you who is born again will love God, you'll love your neighbor, you'll love your brother, you'll keep God's commandments. You'll believe in Christ because of that rebirth. So new birth leads to new living, not the other way around. Uh, And Jesus makes that uh, clear. So this is the inside-out kind of transformation. It's, It's 
It's a resource that we have, this spiritual resource for Christian obedience starts on the inside when God changes something. He changes your heart by giving you his spirit and uh, helping you to believe in his son. And so fourthly, then, this is why we can look at Christian obedience as a joyful thing. It's a joy. Joy is, uh, Tim Keller says that joy is the marker of justified persons. People who have been made right with God as a free gift of his grace, not because of uh, trying hard enough to do good enough to earn favor with God, but people who have been made right with God as a free gift of his grace, people are justified in his sight, treated as just in his sight, then joy is the marker of those people, right? And, uh, our obedience will be marked by, and it'll be motivated by, joy. Um, and that's what it says when, uh, when our text says that the commandments are not burdensome. It, it means they're not oppressive, right? These are not, these are not commandments that are being heaped up on you as expectations that you must keep if you're going to be okay. If you're going to be right with God, if you're going to be an okay person in his sight or with regard to other people in the church or other people in life, uh, you've got to do all these things. That's not the way that God's law is given to us. It's not oppressive. It is not burdensome. It comes from a joyful place of freedom. Ed Welch says uh, in a book on addictions, he says that deep in our hearts, we question God's goodness. We think he's holding out on us. We think that he is a cosmic killjoy who wants stoic obedience. One of the deepest deceptions is the lie that there's something good out there and it's better than what God gives you. Right? He's a cosmic killjoy. He doesn't want you to be happy. He wants stoic obedience. You're going to gut it out for him because he wants more. He wants more than what you're doing. And that is the wrong way. That is not the Christian way to look at obedience. Christian obedience, uh, the Christian knows better. The Christian looks at the law uh, and it's, it's cast in the light of God's grace, this, the freely restored relationship that you have because of, of God's grace and his love for you, his great sacrifice for you through Jesus Christ. And the Christian knows, if God loved me to the point of giving his son, not sparing the life of his own son to bring me into a relationship with himself that lasts forever, that will be characterized by love and joy and perfection and purity, He's, he's done everything to make this relationship happy. And he said, and then he gives me these commandments. They're not, I'm not, this is not supposed to be a stoic obedience. This is meant for my good. This is meant for my flourishing. This is the way things are supposed to be. And it will be characterized by joy. Uh, the Christian knows better than to think that God is a cosmic killjoy who just wants stoic obedience. It says in verse 3 of our text, For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. They're meant, they are beautiful, they are glorious, they are going to characterize us in glory for eternity, forever. We will perfectly fulfill all of these commandments from the heart, and it will be a beautiful thing, and we will all flourish individually and in society. We will all flourish forever because we will have the freedom to fully keep God's law, and that is in stark contrast in the scriptures with, uh, again, the Pharisees. Uh, Jesus says of them in Matthew 23 that they tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders. Uh, Jesus says that, uh, take my yoke on you, my burden is easy. 
my yoke, my burden is light. It's very light. It's not oppressive, right? It's not you must do this or else. It's not you must do this if you want to please me and be right with me and stand on your own two feet in my sight. That's what the Pharisees do. They tie up these heavy burdens. They put them on your shoulders as expectations. That's legalism. That's moralism. That's thinking that if you keep the law well enough, you can feel okay about yourself, and God will be happy with you. And, um, I mean, maybe you are like that. Maybe you've met people like that, people who are driven, uh, people who are just driven by expectations, driven by pressures that they put on themselves because they'll never feel good enough unless they do everything perfectly, right? They'll never feel good enough unless, maybe in this case, uh, religiously, they, will, they, they don't keep God's law perfectly. And that's, that's a futile way of using obedience. We don't use obedience for ourselves that way. We don't try to get something out of our obedience. When you do that, it's going to turn up empty. You're using it for the wrong purpose, right? Uh, some folks say that it's, it's too hard to keep the law. I just can't do it. I've tried. I give up. It's too hard. It's too heavy, right? Uh, and that leads them to despair. Some people say that, yeah, it's really hard to keep, but it's totally worth it because otherwise you're going to feel bad about yourself, right? You're going to feel guilty. You're going to feel like you're a bad person. Uh, there might be a natural reluctance in all of us to do this, you know, to keep God's commandments, which seems like a burdensome thing. Um, but uh, when you kind of gut it out and you do it, in order to feel good about yourself, or at least not bad about yourself, kind of trick yourself into thinking that uh, you're not actually guilty before God, then, uh, then that obedience ends up being just lip service. If it's not done from a heart that is renewed and restored and joyful before God, it's lip service, it's legalism, it's self-righteousness. And in the end, it's, it's arrogance, it amounts to disobedience. Right? So you try to keep God's law in order to get a sense of peace for yourself. That's actually disobedience. You're not keeping God's law. Right? Um, grace has to come first. Salvation has to come first. We obey, Christians obey from joyful motives because we obey from a place of rest. We're not striving to achieve something with our obedience. We don't have God's law laid out in front of us as this is how you're going to get to heaven. This is how you can feel okay about your relationship with God. That's not the way we see the law. We see the law as something that comes from a place of rest, a place of wholeness. Wholeness, restoration, knowing God's grace, knowing his love for you in Christ leads to obedience, not the other way around. Obedience doesn't achieve wholeness for you. It doesn't achieve peace for you. Um, <clears throat> Steve Brown uh, has a couple books. One of them is, uh, you know, I can't remember the title of it, sorry. Um, but he's got a great quote. He says that the greatest cause for our not getting better, or not you know, improving sanctification, holiness, obedience, that kind of thing, the greatest cause for our not getting better is our obsession with not getting better. There's a better way of getting better than trying harder. Holiness hardly ever becomes a reality until we care more about Jesus than about our holiness. The only people who get better are people who know that if they never get better, God will love them anyway. The only people who get better are the people who know, who know that if they never get better, God will love them anyway. God already has loved you. 
in spite of the fact that you're a sinner, right? And it's that grace, it's that salvation that has to come and give you wholeness and a sense of peace with regard to your relationship with God that Jesus Christ came and he lived the perfect life and his life counts for us and he died our death in our place under God's wrath so that we wouldn't have to. His death counts for us so that the death sinners deserve has already been died and the life that humans should live has already been lived. And if you put your faith in Christ, you're united to him by his spirit and everything that's true of him is true of you. It counts for you. That's the good news that you are restored to relationship with God through Jesus Christ and through him only. Not because of who you are in and of yourself and not because of what you can do to keep God's law to earn that place in and of yourself. But knowing this, knowing this salvation, knowing this God by his grace, then um, is freeing. It's a delight. It's comforting. It's reassuring. It brings you joy. Knowing and living then according to his will, the one that you already know by his grace, living according to his will is a delight. And that's how um, it can be said so many places in the Psalms, like uh, Suzanne read earlier from um, Psalm 119 in our Old Testament reading, the Lord is my portion. I promise to keep your words. The Lord is already my portion. He's everything I want. A portion. It's like a meal or like an inheritance. It's like something that is yours. Something that you get to enjoy. Something that you get to uh, consume and, and enjoy, in a sense. The Lord is my portion. That, that is the, the, the fantastic news that the immortal, eternal, all-loving, all-joyful, triune God, the only God that there is, he's your portion. He fills you up. He's your life. And because of that, the Lord is my portion, I promise to keep your words. Right? I promise to keep your words. That's a response. I entreat your favor with all my heart. Be gracious to me according to your promise, according to your grace. Not, not according to what I can do to earn your grace, to earn your favor, but be gracious to me according to your promise, your words, where you've promised goodness to me. At midnight, I rise to praise you because of your righteous rules as a response to his grace. The earth, O Lord, is full of your steadfast love. Teach me your statutes. You have, dwelt, you have dealt well with your servant, O Lord. Teach me good judgment and knowledge. You are good and you do good. Teach me your statutes. I delight in your law. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. And then Psalm 19, the law of the Lord is perfect. The precepts of the Lord are right. The commandment of the Lord is pure. The rules of the Lord are true. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. It's the best naturally occurring substance to eat on earth, right, is honey. Uh, Your law is better than that. Money, thousands of pieces of gold and silver. I want the law more than money. I wake up in the middle of the night delighting in your law. That's, that's a foreign experience to anybody who's not a Christian. You can't look at God's law and say, I want your law more than money, more than enough money to make me wealthy forever. I, I think about your law. I think about what it means to live as your servant in this world. I think about that so much it wakes me up in the middle of the night. Do you know what that means? And you can only know what that means as a response to God's grace to you, right? This, this is only the, the joyful, 
cheerful, glad-hearted, driven obedience that comes from having a relationship with God by his grace through Jesus Christ. And that's, by the way, I mean, almost a side note, that's, that's the way you've got to teach your kids obedience. You don't drive them obedient, to obedience with fear, with threats, with punishment, strictness, harshness, stoic obedience. That's not how we interact with our kids. We, we have a deep love relationship with our kids to where um, it becomes natural them, for them, uh, for them to, to want the things that we want for them. And to do the things that we tell them. That's, that's not a common experience, even for Christian parents, but, you know, for kids to respond so well. But that's all of our experience with God. We don't respond like we should. And God loves us anyway, and he assures us of the relationship that we have with him by his grace. Nothing can threaten his love toward you. Nothing can take away his love. He's already given his son, Jesus Christ, for you. You can be assured that God loves you, and you're in a restored relationship with him by your faith in Jesus Christ. And that's what's supposed to win your obedience. It's a joyful obedience. And that's the way that we need to interact with our kids uh, when we teach them obedience. We need to teach them joy. We need to teach them love and be in good relationship with them uh, first. Jesus said in John 15, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you. The joy of the eternal, perfect Son of God. That that joy might be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you, he says. And greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. So he's saying it'll be uh, his joy and full, complete joy. When you love like Jesus loves, even in the point of laying down your life for your friends, Christian, we do, good, we do good works from a place of love, from a place of joy, from a place of rest, not to achieve something, not from a sense of lack, like I'm missing something if I, if I don't do this. I'm not good enough if I don't do this. We do good works. We love each other. We obey God from that place of restored fullness by God's grace, we even obey God to the point of death. And we do so joyfully, because that's what Jesus did. He, for the joy that was set before him, he took his cross, he went to the cross, he despised the shame of it. He, there were mixed emotions, right, at the cross. It was real pain, it was real suffering, it was real shame, it was real agony. But there was also real joy. And the end of that joy for him was restoring us to fellowship with God, right? The end of his joy that drove him to the cross, to obedience to the point of death on a cross, the goal of his joy was you, so that you would be restored to right relationship with God. And that's how we're supposed to live. We, we love each other out of joy. Uh, we'll love and obey God even to the point of death out of joy. We'll have mixed feelings about it, right? There's real pain. There's real suffering. But um, but. Joy is the essential kind of motivator for our obedience for Christians. And this is, again, uh, Christian obedience is kind of inside-out stuff. It's kind of upside-down stuff. It doesn't make sense to the world. You need to be a Christian to, to know what this means. And that's actually the good news. That's the fifth point of, uh, of the sermon. Uh, that what I want to say from the text is that um, Christian obedience is reassuring. The effect that it has 
on you when, when you obey is, uh, is reassuring because it says everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. Everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And that's reassuring. In a sense, it undermines false assurance, right? You're not supposed to be fooled into having, uh, thinking that you have a relationship with God when you don't do things like believe in Jesus Christ or when you don't do things like love your neighbor and obey the Ten Commandments. Um, Christian obedience, Christian faith and Christian obedience and a, even a joyful obedience is, is normal, it's inevitable, it's certain, it is necessary as a fruit, right? As a fruit of true salvation. So don't fool yourself if you're claiming to be a Christian, you're claiming to be in right relationship with God, and you have nothing to do with Christian obedience at all, and you don't understand what it means to obey God from a place of joy, you need to stop fooling yourself. There's no reassurance for you in that. But there is assurance if this does characterize you to some degree that you're having this kind of response to who God is and what he's done for you in Christ, this kind of love and obedience uh, to him and, and um, the way you treat others, you can have assurance that I mean, in a sense, John's saying, you're on the winning team. You're on the winning team. You have victory over the world. There's God's people, and there's the world who are the enemies of God, and the enemies of God's people, and those who hate Jesus Christ and hate his people by extension. And uh, John says, you have the victory over them. They, they can't threaten you. They can't win you to their side. They can't... Um, deter you from following God anymore. You have, what you have in this life of a response to God's grace with some measure of obedience, not perfect obedience, but some glimpse of it, what you have is glorious and beautiful and compelling and reassuring for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that's overcome the world. It's our faith, right? So the world pushes back against God. And it pushes back against God's people. It's one of those three enemies that the scriptures say we've got the world, the flesh, and the devil. And the world offers moral pressures. It offers intellectual pressures. It offers physical pressures in the form of persecution. Uh, pressures and temptations that the world puts on us that make obedience difficult. Right? Because when you're surrounded by people who have nothing to do with God, people who don't understand what Christian obedience is, uh, you're constantly tempted to act just like everybody else acts, right? And uh, to be overcome then by the world and its pressures. But Jesus uh, says, and John says here, that, that we have overcome the world. Jesus says of himself, he says, the ruler of this world is coming. The one who rules the, the world, in a sense, is the devil. He's coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father's commanded me. He has no claim on me. I do as the Father's commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. And our faith is essentially Jesus' own victory over the world and over the devil himself. Our faith is essentially the victory over the world um, because the world is trying to get us, in a sense, to sin. The world is trying to get us to depart from our relationship with God. The world is trying to get us not to respond to God's grace and love uh, with joy and obedience and love. But when you put your faith in Christ, that, um, that's what the world doesn't want, but you've already done it. 
right? And you've done it because you've been born again. You've done it. This Christ-centered faith is the victory, and we can be joyful about it. We can be reassured about it. It can be the reason for our joy that uh, we know that we belong to the winning team because of Jesus, because of his grace, because of being born again by his spirit, and because of some evidence of uh, his work in our lives through our obedience. Um, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and that's you, right? If your faith is in Jesus Christ, if your life demonstrates something of that faith in your obedience and love, that's you. Uh, You've been born of God, and that's reassuring, isn't it? Uh, Amen. Let's pray. Father, we are uh, glad to know you. We only know you by your grace because you went to such great lengths to reveal yourself to us, to show us your love, and to to win us to yourself through Jesus. And so uh, we're glad that you are who you are and you've done what you've done. And uh, we want to respond to you well. We want to keep your law. We want it to become sweeter to us than honey and more precious to us than gold. We want your law, your will for our lives uh, to... um, Take over our minds and transform our hearts so that all of our thoughts uh, would be shaped by your will. And all of our affections would be shaped by the things that you want for us in our relationships with you and with each other. We know that um, what you want is the most beautiful and the most glorious thing because you've given us uh, your son so that you can have a relationship with us. And we want that. We want you And by your grace, we have you. So uh, please uh, make us more like your son as those who love and delight in your law. For the sake of your kingdom going forward in this world, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.